This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Ever wake up with the strangest sense that if you open your eyes, you won't be home. Thoughts awaken inside as you lie alone. At least you think you know, maybe a dream of old. How could you know if you could make it so? Would you know what to say if you could change it now? How would you answer today? It's a shame, I know. Now that you're being told, you're no attention old. Could you know? Daylight comes, life gets started. I fall off a dream I'd guarded and wanted. I wonder just when I think we've grown apart, I start to see how close we are. Still, I wonder. I wonder. Waiting for a surprise, just in suspense. Circumstances decide in a second glance. Why even take the chance? We'll never change your stance. How could you last? Daylight comes, life gets started. I fall off a dream I guarded. Want, I wonder. Just when I think we've grown apart, I start to see how close we are. Still, I wonder. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder her, I wonder if there'll come a day when I won't have to look away. I wonder, I wonder if I'm wrong, even if nobody hears my song. That is Logan Heftel, H-E-F-T-E-L. You can find his stuff at loganheftel.com. You know, the song is called Wonder, and uh, I really do wonder a lot today because I'm wondering, is any of this shit going to get solved? I was driving in my car on the way up here, and they were talking about the budget impasse in Washington, and I, I mean, I know this intellectually and I get this all the time that these people are playing games with each other and they're playing little boy wave my dick. It's bigger than your games and uh, this standoff. And, and, and literally it was like, oh, well, we're going to do this. We've attached this abortion amendment to this thing that will fund the government. But if Obama doesn't sign it, then it's the Democrats fault. And it's like, I, I, I give up. I swear to God, I am so ready to give up. I'm ready to like, I don't know, move to Ireland and be poor. And at least it's really green there. I, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm so frustrated right now. I screamed at my radio 
I told it, I screamed at it, shut the fuck up. And then I made it shut the fuck up and I went to a music station. Uh, but uh, I, 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 that's like all I can say. It's like, those are the only words I have. I don't have any words anymore for this stuff. It's, it's mind boggling. I'm completely boggled of the mind type. So uh, anyway, it's Thursday, April 7th. And uh, we're here in uh, California, Los Angeles, as you know, and it was, it, I swear to God, it was summer here last, last week. It was like 85 degrees for two days in a row. Today, we're having some sort of strange weather phenomena come in. There's like gusty winds, possible thunderstorms, and snow that may get down to 2000 feet. So no, there's nothing wrong with the climate. Everything's fine. People just keep drinking your lattes and watching the situation and you'll be fine. But um, yeah, weird weather here today. Uh, I uh, have a really great guest today. And of course, lo and behold, uh, she's in traffic because it's LA. It's it's typical LA. And, and even Marion Williamson cannot part traffic. <laughs> Although I would think if anyone could in LA that maybe she could have this mind thing and just have the people move out of her way. But no, she's clearly very human and, 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 a, and a regular wonderful human being. So she'll be here shortly. Uh, so I'm going to tap dance for a while. So I wanted to tell you about this amazing event that happened on Tuesday night. And if you're in Los Angeles and you have nothing to do on a Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month, I highly recommend you come down to the Actors Gang Theater in Culver City. That is the theater and the theater company that Tim Robbins uh, runs. And he has created this incredible space and group of people that just think outside the box. And I hate that term, but it's exactly true. They think outside the box. And they have this really interesting series called Axis Mundi, where it's it's about getting the community involved in conversation. So it's it's every month there's a different theme and uh, different different ways of approaching it. Sometimes they have um, a panel discussion with writers, I think, and journalists, things like that. They have some young teenagers who write beat poetry. And then on the first Tuesday of every night, uh, every month, they've invited uh, Paul Provenza and company, because that includes uh, his partner, uh, Barbara Roman, who's the producer on this show, and Carmela Cardina, who's an amazing producer, director, writer, fantastic woman in her own right. And they come up with ideas in how to express the theme of the month. And this month, it was religion. So, oh, and so, you know, it's under the umbrella Satiristas, which is that great book that Paul has with uh, Dan Dion, with the photographs and the interviews of Satiristas in America and actually internationally. And my dad's in the book. It's very sweet. So anyway, this is like, uh, so, so, so for religion, you think, okay, the satirical take on religion. All right. Uh, uh, that'll be interesting. And, you know, kind of maybe the mainstream straight way to do it was have some comics on who, you know, do satirical religious material. Oh, no. Oh, no, that's way too straightforward and, and, and normal. Instead, we had a fake religious expo called ConCon. And what we did was uh, we had booths and everyone represented a different religion. And I got to represent uh, Zen Buddhism, which was very cool because I am actually a practicing Buddhist and I do study Zen. But I got to be the satirical version of that on Tuesday night which for me was really cool because I decided to do satire on the satire and actually do real Zen. <laughs> 
and just blow people's minds as they walked up to me. And I had some very intense, amazing conversations with people and really worked with them in in a very Zen way, uh, whatever they were seeking, whatever they were looking for. And I had an epiphany. I had one of those epiphanies. Uh, My whole life, I've always struggled because I've always felt half of me has to be a teacher and the other half of me has to be a comedian performer. And on Tuesday night, I got to be teacher slash comedian performer, and it was awesome. I felt like uh, the actual great fool that uh, Genpo Roshi talks about all the time. So it was very, very cool. And uh, so I invite you, first Tuesdays uh, of the month, come down to see what Paul and group and friends and crazy people get together uh, and just, if you know Rick Shapiro, the comedian, all I have to say about the rest of this is that Rick Shapiro played Satan on Tuesday night. And that's all I have to say. It was, it was magical to see him in red fishnet tights. That's, 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 that's all I'm going to say with that. Okay. Well, my darling guest has arrived, so I'm very excited. So I've got a little bit of a preamble here to do because I kind of want to create some context for all of this. And she's, and she's, uh, needs some water. <laughs> <clears throat> So in the mid-1980s, in my uh, 20s, early 20s, late teens, early 20s, uh, I was uh, a pretty confused, lost young lady. Uh, I had, as most of you, my listeners know, uh, grown up at the knee of my father, who was a counterculture hero, which was amazing in many ways, but also meant that there was a lot of chaos in my family and a lot of chaos in my environment. So... We know that chaos breeds more chaos sometimes. (laughs) And so in my late teens, I was making what only I could say are uh, dubious choices about my life. And uh, so by my early 20s, I would officially call myself completely lost. And uh, I married a man who was much older than myself, who was a cocaine dealer, who (laughs) um, had a very complicated home life. And I found myself, and he was very challenging. He had a very challenged personality. He was ADHD. He was very controlling. He was um, a little uh, kind of uh, uh, obsessive-compulsive. And um, luckily, around 25, though, I decided, even though I was still with him, that I wanted a healthier direction in my life. And so we started doing 12-step programs, and he was going to AA, and I was going to AA, and I was going to Al-Anon, and I was going to Adult Children of Alcoholics, and you name the 12-step program. I think I drank coffee at your meeting room in the mid-'80s. But one thing that we did was... um, we would go out and, and seek different uh, speakers and things like that. And I don't know what year it was, but it was some year. Uh, it was in Santa Monica. And uh, there was uh, a woman speaking in a small church on Arizona Avenue. I think it was Arizona Avenue. And uh, sh- I didn't know who this person was. I went into this small church. I think that only sat like maybe 70, 80, 100 people. It was just really, really intimate space. And um, she was teaching something called A Course in Miracles. I did not know what that was and really at the moment did not really care because what I found there was a an actual resting place, a place of peace, a place of calm. And the other thing I found there, which was really interesting, was uh, a model for myself because I saw this person, Marianne, who who I'll be speaking with in a moment, 
talking about her own life and putting her own life in context and then putting it through the teachings. And I thought, wow, she's using her own struggle and her own confusion and her own pain and transforming it and talking about it in a way that it, it, it has meaning because it's, it's, it's transformed itself and it's changed and, and, and what an incredible light that was. And something clicked inside of me. It was a small seed that was planted at that moment, but something inside of me went, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to stand on a stage. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to be talking about my own life. And at the same time, hopefully it's going to land on people and have some sort of impact. So I am truly honored today to have this woman in my studio. If you're not familiar with Marianne Williamson, let me just give you a little bit of her resume here. <laughs> she has published uh, 10 books. Six of them have been on the New York Times bestseller list, including A Return to Love, which in it has that incredible paragraph and that incredible um, essay that starts with, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we were powerful beyond measure which is so true. Uh, she um, is really considered uh, a, a light and, and, and an anthem for contemporary generation of seekers. Her other books are Age of Miracles, Everyday Grace, A Woman's Worth, Illuminata, Healing the Soul of America, which I'd like to talk about a little bit today. She's, of course, been a guest on Oprah and Larry King and Good Morning America and Charlie Rose. And her newest book, uh, New York Times bestseller, bestseller, A Course in Weight, Li- Weight Loss. Blah, I can't even talk today. So anyway, I'm just so happy you're here. Hello, Marianne. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad you didn't have too much hassle getting here. I'm so sorry about that. I know. It's L.A. It is, yes. So um, before we get into the, some big, juicy, yummy stuff, I, I just would love to, for you to share with my listeners a little bit <laughs> about your your journey like how how did you get to that podium in Santa Monica uh teaching the course of miracles uh you know what what led you in your earlier life to to suddenly standing forward and standing up in front of people and saying I have something to share I started uh, reading a course in miracles when I was in my middle to late 20s and I was passionate about the book just in terms of my own spiritual journey and my own just journey through life And then when I came to Los Angeles in 1983, I was working at a place (coughs) called the Philosophical Research Society in Los Feliz. And when I had been in Houston previous to coming here, I had led uh, groups, study groups on A Course in Miracles at a bookstore that I owned there. Well, over at the Philosophical Research Society, they have lecture series. And I was very excited when I was asked to speak uh, every Saturday morning, I think at the time, on the course. Well, serendipitously, this coincided with the explosion of the AIDS crisis Mm. here in Los Angeles and, of course, elsewhere as well. So at that time, uh, contracting the HIV virus was an automatic death sentence. There was no hope for anything Mm. at all. The uh, medical profession at that time had nothing to offer. And the organized religious institutions had to work through their own, I think, homophobia and ambivalence, et cetera. So there was this woman, namely myself, relatively young at the time, over in this corner of Los Feliz talking about a God who loves you no matter what Mm. and miracles. 
So Gay Men in Los Angeles, in that sense, really gave me my career because I was speaking, but that is what caused attention, hmm. that there was this confluence of, of my work and a population in crisis. So, Wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I I knew that you ended up speaking up here on the church in Highland. Very close to here, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Gardner. The, yeah, yeah. Well, Highland and then Hollywood and Gardner, right? Very close to here. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't know that that's how the confluence of, of that. That's, wow. Right. And then, of course, we started Project Angel Food out of that. Right, right, which I still donate to every year. I Good get for you. little Good stickers in the mail. Good on you. <laughs> it's like the one thing I always, no matter how much little money I have, God damn it, I'm giving it to them. Uh, so, so let's jump in here. Uh, I, you know, let's let's talk about the course a little bit and and talk about the G word, the God word, <laughs> uh, which uh, sometimes these days is, uh, you know, uh, not appreciated or it's well. I think there are several billion people on the planet who appreciate it. Y- yes, <laughs> here in Hollywood, people might say it's not appreciated, but most places of the world. It's- yeah, and I think that's kind of what I wanted to start with was really want to talk about like your definition of God because in this postmodern world where a lot of us have been seekers and have studied different religions and different paths, uh, not just you know a Judeo-Christian path, uh, we've found our kind of own way to you know some people are into integral philosophy, uh, you know some people are New Age, whatever, uh, have a, a p- peculiar not a peculiar a particular relationship with God, and I just was curious about your own definition and well I don't think that there is a definition per se the course of miracles there's a part in the introduction where it says the course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love for that cannot be taught what it aims to do is to remove the barriers uh, against love's coming I think there is one truth with a capital T and it is spoken in many different ways many different jargons many different languages many different religious philosophical and spiritual systems but to me there is one truth for me personally, I simply don't have a problem with the word God. Mm-hmm. I'm Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish home. It's not fraught. The word God is not fraught. I was not taught about hell and damn, you know, damnation and hellfire. So there's nothing mm. for me to rub up against. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. But for people who have a problem with the word, you know, they have a problem with the word. So that's fine. They use another word. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a, of a divine force, divine creator something that lives within us, which can do for us uh, what we cannot do for ourselves. I'm fine with the way <clears throat> in 12-step programs they talk about God as you understand him. Right. But it is a higher power. Yeah. Um, people get there with whatever language comforts them. Yeah, and, and I think that's important. I think uh, finding your own way to it is uh, – a part of the powerful experience uh, of seeking the transcendent. I mean, for myself, I've studied uh, Jung a lot. I've got my master's in Jungian psychology. So uh, a lot of the way I think about it is when he talks about the self with a capital S, that thing that is beyond ego, that is beyond, uh, you know, that is bigger than, uh, that encompasses all of psyche. Of course, in Miracles does the same thing, talking about the self with a little s and also the self with a big s. And, of course, in any Christic philosophical terminology, that would be seen as the Christ within. Right, right. Christ consciousness. The Shekinah, the Buddha mind. It's really it, all the it, same. It's all the same thing. You know, and it's, it's so interesting. Um, <coughs> my dad, he was a Catholic growing up and, uh, and then not <laughs> and spoke very publicly about that and had a lot of opinions about the church and institutionalized religion. And when he... 
uh, about four years before he died, he actually finally went and got officially sober and went through a program and started going to AA meetings. And, of course, in AA meetings, they, they talk about this higher power. And he, he, it was really fascinating to watch someone who had not shut the door on his own spirituality because he had his own relationship with that. He called it the big electron. And he used to make jokes about it and, you know, call it Joe Pesci also. You can call it whatever you want, you know. But he, it, it was really interesting watching him having to, his, his own ego, as, as it is in 12-step programs, where you have to surrender some part of yourself. And, and, and say, yes, there is something bigger than my ego, that I'm not completely in charge. And, and I, I, I've, I've encountered some other friends who are staunch atheists, you know, staunch atheists, and um, to the point where they're as fundamentalist yeah, as... like Bill Maher, I think of. As a, he's quite a fundamentalist. He is, as, he is as fundamentalist in his atheism as anybody that he has a problem with as a fundamentalist religious person. It's fascinating. I am right, you are wrong, and you are wrong if you do not agree with me. It's funny almost. It's almost humorous to me. Well, yeah, and and, and I'd even give Bill a, a little even sway there because at least Bill does say out loud, I'm also in the I don't know category. Like he says, I don't really know. I can't know. But I, you know, so so he does say that. So th- and that and that that's interesting to me. But but it's it's I, I and so for me, one of the things I wanted to talk about was how um, I, I this is the strangest thing, but like when my dad died, you know, I think when parents die, you all their shadow material, you kind of start to investigate it and start to say, well, I've been I've been brushing up against this in a certain way, and I've had a stance like, and it was about spirituality with me with my father. Uh, I was the seeker in the family. He always called me the shaman of the family. My mother was also very much a seeker, and and, and my dad was in his in his own ways. But I kind of held that for the family. And my dad had a very dark um, position when it came to like the species and what's going on in the planet and and things like that. And I've found that since my dad died, I have been. Uh, entertaining more those darker thoughts. Like I used to have real hope about things like, oh, like, like if we really do raise our consciousness and if we really do work on this and as individuals, we, we wake up to things that there's a chance that things are going to change. And I got to tell you, Marianne, and I'm so glad you're here that the last few years, it's been, it's really hard for me to sit there nowadays. I look at what's going on in the world and I look at what's going on in our government. And I really do believe there's a huge paradigm shift going on in this planet. I don't know if we're going to make it or not. Well, I think it's a race for time. We're like the the Titanic on the way to the iceberg. The iceberg could take many different forms. It could be nuclear. Obviously, it could be nuclear. Mm-hmm. It could be weather. It could be uh, terrorism-related. It could be biomedical. And I think if you look only with your mortal mind, only with the reasoning, rational mind, the probability vectors are very grim. So the spiritual perspective does not deny that. The spiritual perspective, however, posits that we can shift out of probability vector into possibility vector, that we can bypass or transcend time and space as we know it, that when we do move into that self with a capital S, we move into a different dimension. As, as Einstein said, time and space are illusions of consciousness. So if we remain at the level of consciousness that we are now, I think that the warnings of people like your father are absolutely valid 
I think that there, that ring of truth in his vision is part of what made him the iconic character that he was. Mm -hmm. Because he wasn't just saying, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible. He was a genius saying it, and right. we could all recognize that. So for those of us who <clears throat> do uh, subscribe to a metaphysical view of the world, we don't deny that it's the 11th hour. We just know that one hour is plenty to do what needs to be done if enough of us do it. That shift, you know, whenever there is a, a, a shift in consciousness, it really causes an evolutionary um, uh, dynamic to change. It's not a majority of the people who <laughs> embrace that change. You know, right. a majority of people didn't wake up and say, oh, let's free the slaves. <laughs> a majority of people didn't wake up one day and go, oh, let women vote. They want to. You know, it's always a small group of people yes. considered, you know, outrageous radicals by the status quo of their time. No less than Darwinian theory when you have the mutation mm -hmm. who does not represent the majority of the species but simply represents a more life-sustaining possibility. And literally no other member of the species can survive at a certain point. Mm -hmm. So the only hope uh, for the species not going extinct is that enough people, and we don't know what that enough is. Some social scientists say 11%. Uh, you know, um, it's that hundredth monkey, that tipping point. Right. So it is a sense of a race of time. Like you said, it's a huge paradigm shift. The forces of darkness, i.e. fear, domination, greed, etc., are intensifying on the planet at this time. At the same time, forces of light, forces of greater expansion, universal love, uh, people making a serious effort and mm -hmm. a more transcendent way of being in the world is also increasing. So I think, for me, it's kind of like a great tennis player, watching a great tennis player. You know, one of the fascinating things to me about athletic mastery is the emotional discipline that it obviously is. It mm. goes along with it. They do, a, a professional, when you watch a great tennis player, a great basketball player, they do not, they cannot afford a fraction of a second to bemoan the mistake they made the second before. There's no time. Just keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And I think that's where the most conscious among us are at this moment. I think hope, for me, is a moral imperative. Mm. I can't indulge a moment talking about whether or not we might make this. Mm -hmm. we, we can't indulge. Any possibility that we have of turning the ship around in time demands that we not indulge a conversation about whether or not we're going to make it. Right. Because we're not going to make it if we indulge those moments. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I think too. I mean, I I, I find myself, uh, you know, p playing with these ideas, but I do know that I want to participate. And I think what it is, it's I think I have to come to a point where I really need to choose. Like, well, exactly, because when you just said I. I'm playing with these ideas. I, I submit to you the, the importance of playing no longer. You know, yeah. the era of data collection is over. Mm -hmm. The era of, you know, sitting around stone listening to George Carlin, that was a very <laughs> important part in all our lives. Yes. But that's not the impulse of this moment. Yes, absolutely. A and, and I know, like, the last 10 years, I mean, studying Jungian and becoming a life coach and working in leadership, I mean, there's, I've been studying these systems and really see, you know, when you talk about quantum shift, I've worked with a group of people and watched what happens when a group of like minds get together to solve a problem, even if it's at a leadership retreat, uh, watch some sort of leap happening of collective consciousness right. to solve the problem. Exactly. I, I mean, I've seen it with my, I've been a part of the, the mind that right. did it. So I know that is true. And, and, and I think what y'all didn't, sit around talking no. first about whether or not it could possibly happen, you did it. Absolutely. And action was the most important thing. It was always about moving forward, putting the next step forward. And then you would say to yourself, okay, what's needed now? What's needed now? What's needed now? And this was kind of part of it. And, and I know for myself, 
that uh, I just I want to it's like I want to be done with this grappling and yet I'm just a grappling type of person but the part that I'm grappling with always is um, oh I, I don't even know how to, how to voice it really but it, it's it's about you know what it is and it's something that you called out. Uh, I, I saw you about uh, Marianne speaks, does lectures here in L.A., uh, was Tuesday nights. Now you're doing Monday nights. At Monday a, nights at the Saban Theater. At right. a new theater. Mm-hmm. Wilshire, just east of La Cienega. And uh, I saw you about six months ago, and you uh, were had gone to uh, India, and then you'd gone to Washington to uh, to speak to our representatives about... Probably it was Africa, maybe? When oh, I'm Africa. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was <laughs> Africa. That's right. And 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 there was a... A fierceness that you were talking about that night about, you know what, people, it's time to, to, to shit or get off the pot. Like, it's time to get, you know, it's time to go. Like, no more navel-gazing, no more worrying about it. And and it's like, I, I, this is what I've been wrestling with, is that, oh, and, and, I, and I think for me, like, doing this radio show is part of that, like, trying to be part of the solution, have conversations about it. But... But there is this part of me that also sits there and watches. I was just, before you came in, talking about the uh, listening to the budget arguing going on in Washington. And I screamed at my radio. I just, I can't take it anymore. I cannot take that these are our leaders. And, and that's what drives me crazy. And, and, and yet I know that we all need to be better citizen leaders here. And I, and I wanted to talk to you about that. A couple of things. First of all, I want to point out a line in The Course in Miracles where it says, Miracles are born of conviction. Hmm. There's, there's no answer to whether or not it will happen other than the choice we make whether or not it will happen. So when you stand in conviction in a, of a possibility, you literally increase the possibility. You mm. literally increase the possibility. The other thing has to do with our being grown-ups because if you, if you look at people in Washington today who are admittedly behaving like <laughs> children at best and utter fools at worst, yes. it, for us to simply go crazy and yell at the television is our being similarly childish. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite stories from history has to do with Dwight Eisenhower uh, the night before the D-Day invasion. He, of course, was Supreme Allied Commander, and he knew that even under the best of circumstances, more people were going to die in the landing, the, the invasion uh, at Normandy, than in any other military um, action that had ever taken place in history, even if it went well, even if it was successful. And there was absolutely no guarantee that it would be successful. Well, meteorology at that time was not what it is now. Mm. Um, Hitler, of course, thought they were, he expected the landing at Calais. Um, and so the Allies knew that they didn't have too much time before Hitler would figure it out. So eyewitnesses report about the fact that they were all sitting around a table, and the meteorologist told um, Eisenhower, well, we know this. We think that tomorrow at around 4 or 5 in the morning, whatever it was, that the cloud, we know the cloud cover will be the conditions that you need for the landing. We can't promise that because, once again, the meteorological information at that time was somewhat crude compared to today. We, we can't promise this. We can't promise that. But you will have that, that one opening in the clouds or, you know, that will allow you to do it or the clouds will be covering enough that will allow you to do it, et cetera. And if Eisenhower waited, of course, there would be the ch- for more optimum conditions, there would be the chance that Hitler would, would find out. So eyewitnesses say that the meteorological report was given to him, and he sat there quietly and... Within one minute, they said it was less than 60 seconds, Eisenhower looked up and he said, okay, let's go. Mm. Now, that moment has really impacted me because I think of how many people in our generation would have 
start a deep breathing exercises or try <laughs> to get their therapist on the cell phone or whatever. Somebody else would have come and let me, you know, let me rub your back. This is just so intense. These were grown-ups. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Life and death for so many people was on the line. It's almost a task so big. Mm. It's, it's almost hard for us to imagine. And I've thought to myself, what kind of human personality, what kind of maturity, what kind of strength mm. listens to that quietly within a minute, knowing how many men you are will we'll die from this. Okay, let's go. Yeah. The, and these guys were not playing at war. War was not, a, you know, Legos to them. This was not like so many of the military actions that we've seen even emanating from our own country over the last um, few decades. This was a whole different ball game. And I think of him, and I think of that level matu- of maturity. And that is, I think, the level of maturity that we are called to now. Wow. That's... <laughs> I've got tears in my eyes right now. It's really... It, it, you just you've you've hit it right on the head right there because and and yet here we are in 2010 and and we have gone through the 60s and the 70s and that evolution of consciousness and that time and I mean we can't erase that we have people that are some way that have become soft and comfortable and uh, at times. Uh, need someone to rub our shoulders so how do we my thing is is like we're, we're not dwight eisenhower we're not the man the steel man of, of the first half of the century we are now women and men of the new century but no but no less is at stake right well no, no less is at stake maybe it could be argued more is at stake absolutely so when you say we're not maybe we should be a little more like that maybe we should there are too many uh, women in our generation who are still girls there are too many men in our generation who are still boys i think that's changing but i think maturity is the pulse of this moment mm. i think it's what I think there, there are many of us who don't want to die knowing that we didn't do what we came here to do. I, I so agree, and 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 this kind of transitions in an interesting way because I was reading your newest book, A Course in Weight Loss, and I was reading a section where you talk about <coughs> your uh, not thin self talking to your thin self and writing letters back and forth, and mm-hmm. and and I do. I do a lot of uh, gestalt kind of talking voice stuff with clients and teaching and stuff like that. So I'm very familiar with that. But what I ended up taking away from that chapter that day was was not so much using those voices, but I actually spoke to uh, my immature adult. That's fascinating. Yeah. It what was, did she tell you? Well, that she, my adult was asked at like four years old to come forward and take care of my drunk mother. So she came, some form of my adult had to come out very early. And, and I think things got very confused so for me. So you weren't able to be enough of a child when you were supposed to be a child. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, it's interesting, though, because as tragic as it is for someone to have to miss their childhood, I think it's similarly tragic when someone misses their adulthood. Yeah. And with self, I, I know this as a mother. If, if you missed a developmental stage and you weren't like, oh, I didn't get, when she was eight, I didn't get it right. If she's 12 now, I don't get to go back and treat her like she was eight. Yeah. And I think that that's part of conscious maturity in ourselves, too. If I didn't, because I, I feel, and I think many women feel this way, 
I, I look back at these women in their 20s, and when I had it, I wish I'd use it a little more. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? But it would be absurd and ridiculous and pathetic if I tried to use it in the same way now. Yeah. Miss that, maybe next lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, can, I can integrate the lesson. Yeah. But I, as much as a child wants to be a child, and as much as I agree with you, that's very, very sad that yeah. you were not allowed to because at four you had to take care of the drunk mother, I think part of you now... Yeah. really wants to be a grown woman at the deepest, most conscious, sober maturity. It, it's so true, and, and, I, and I find it interesting in my own life, the circumstance that both my parents are gone now, and I was an only child, a very enmeshed only child. I was the daughter, you know, and now they're actually gone off the planet right now, and so there's no more parents around except for the ones that live in my head that I choose to have a relationship with in a certain way, and, and I'm finding... Uh, what it is to be an adult right. and, and getting to really define it, not so much pushing against them anymore. Also, I think when you were talking before, what came up for me was there are a lot of hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And for me, anyway, that's a real life principle. There are times when I'm working hard and there are times when I'm playing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and there there's something about um, just being done with it, just getting over myself. Well, no matter, you know, I always say about people's issues with childhood and parents, it doesn't matter where you got it, it's yours now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, you, know, you know, and I talk to my clients all the time about this. You know, I call it, well, that's your training. And, and, you, and you learn things through your training of your childhood, and, and there are certain habit minds and habit things. But th- that was training you had before. So now, now what? But that's all the mortal self. And I always say to people, I hope that your story will grow as boring to you as it already is, I'm sure, to the people who are around <laughs> Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And transcendence, you know, in A Course in Miracles, it says that enlightenment <laughs> is a shift from body identification to spirit identification. The body, that's who we were when we were born a certain year, and we've had these experiences, and this is my resume, and these are my mistakes, and these are my failures, and this is my past, and these are my issues, Mm -hmm. and this is where I'm wounded, and this is what my parents did. One of the reasons we explore it is so that we can then release it. It's not the larger story of your existence. And if you want to stay stuck only on that story, you can, but your life will never move out of that dimension. Yeah. And there's a larger story, and that is the story of, of the Buddha mind, the story of the Shekinah, the story of the Christ, the story of whatever words, the story of the larger self that Christ, that, mm. that Jung talked about. Once again, the story is told in many different ways. That's, that's the big story. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is people used to say to me, well, I, you know, I, I feel that enlightenment would be boring. You know, I, I would miss the drama. And first of all, I don't know, you know, it, that's like saying multiple orgasms are boring. It's like, because it's saying one moment of bliss followed by another moment of bliss followed by another. Oh, boring, boring, boring. But it's also that I, I don't think we're talking about less drama. We're talking about giving up the cheap drama. Yeah. Because there's a grand drama to a, a girl becoming a woman and a, and a boy becoming a man and are becoming despite the fact that the expectations would have been absolutely low for this generation, that at this 11th hour, we turn this thing around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and the, the world is drama. There's plenty of drama happening. And, and I think when you connect to this, to your higher self, and you see what motivates you from that place, which is it's a very different vibration when you're plugged into that, that you encounter the drama out there in a very, very different way. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't participate in it in a, in a sense of, you know, wanting to wrestle with it and get dirty, but you, you, 
you participated in a way that's, uh, you know, I, I find can be uh, acknowledging of it, but at the same time, like, but it, but this isn't really what needs to be happening. Well, I, f- you can look at it as something that you were there to participate in healing. Mm-hmm. Yes. That if it's there, your job is to see it as a, a prayer sent up from, from all living things, how your love and your compassion and your participation in solutions could possibly be of service. Yeah. You see yourself as a miracle worker. You see yourself as a healer. Not that you're the water, you're the faucet. Right. But there is something inside you that if you allow it to uh, be present within you and to prevail within your thinking and to guide your behavior makes you within that situation a healing agent. That's how you look at it. Otherwise, you participate to the problem. You know, they used to say in the 60s, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And I think that's as true today as it ever was. Absolutely. Um, I I wanted uh, to talk a little bit about, um, hold on here, I've got my notes. Um, Yeah, I I was really fascinated that you've written so many books and touched on some really big topics, you know, politics and, and of course, the course and spirituality and women's issues. I mean, another great book. Uh, And now there's this book uh, about weight loss and um, emotional eating and things like that. And I'm just so curious, (coughs) why now that book for you? I was, um, I overheard Oprah Winfrey, and I'm only telling this story because she's told it publicly herself. Mm-hmm. I overheard her talking to someone about a diet, and I said in a very offhand way, in a way that anybody who is involved in these kinds of subjects would have seen as the garden variety comment that it was, I simply said, well, if you could do it by yourself, you would have done it by now. Hmm. And she looked at me and said, what do you mean? And I said, I'll send you an email. And I started sending her these emails about, how spirituality in a way that, you know, when it comes to drugs and alcohol in our society, there's a mainstream realization that there's a spiritual um, component to truly getting sober. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the weight loss conversation, we're still stuck primarily on the level of diet and exercise. Well, that's fine unless you're seriously compulsive. That's fine unless you're an addict, right. <laughs> in which case the compulsion overrides your self-discipline, overrides your conscious awareness, and only God, of course, can override that. So when I started writing to her and talking about spiritual principle in terms of compulsion and addiction, which just happened to be weight loss because that's what she was dealing with, then she was the one who said this should be a book. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I don't know anybody who you know turns down career advice from Uncle Winfrey. <laughs> You'd be a fool, darling. At that time, she was very um, involved in in it. So, I I, at the early in the writing of the book, there was a conversation: should this just be about a book about compulsion, about addiction? Uh But I felt then, and and I still do. I feel when it comes to drugs and alcohol, there are enough books written. People get that, you know, the spiritual context. But on weight loss, and and since starting to write the book, I I feel I've been very privileged to have the veil. Uh, turned, uh, uh, removed for, from a, a lot of people's uh, faces and experience, really allowing me to get a good look at the deep, deep suffering that lies behind this uh, obesity epidemic in the United States. So I'm happy to have written something that takes uh, you know, serious spiritual metaphysical principle to the best that I can understand and articulate it and apply it to this um, issue which is not just you know a cosmetic vanity thing of you know five or ten pounds this is for many many people a life-threatening condition there aren't a lot of um 
80-year-old heroin addicts out there, and there aren't a lot of 80 people who pack uh, 60 or 70 extra pounds on their body either. Absolutely. And and the thing about f- food is, you know, li- unlike drugs and alcohol where you can just uh, eliminate them out of your life, food is something you have to encounter all day long, and it's it, it's part of <laughs> sustenance and nourishment. And it's, it's such a metaphor in, in itself of the emptiness we feel and, you know, the whole idea of comfort food. That's the one thing I remember taking away the first few uh, pages I was reading, this idea that the comfort food you're eating is actually really the unhealthiest food. It's it's not even nourishing you. So oh, I mean, the gift, if you say I'm, I'm eating a, you know, hot fudge sundae because it just comforts me emotionally, this this is delivering you to diabetes, cancer, osteoporosis, brain fog, um, cancer. I mean, the, 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 the gifts that, that foods like that bear are, are gifts of destruction. So what has happened in a case like that is that it's like a breaker switch in the brain that's been turned. And so we're registering food that is really bad for us as emotionally comforting. And we're registering food that's really nourishing for us as boring. Mm-hmm. So people, I think part of the process of the course is to come to understand that while I'm registering something as a, a an act of self-care, I just really, it'll make me feel better. This is profound self-sabotage, self-destruction, violence towards self. You know, three sandwiches um, mm-hmm. before you go to bed at 1130 at night and followed up by a little bit of ice cream. This is an act of violence towards self. So the book, you know, gets down with these deeper realities that are painful to look at, but... Um, but which, once looked at well, mm-hmm. deliver us to laughter and and a deeper communion with God, and the weight loss that comes about is almost incidental. Absolutely, and and the whole idea of self love. I, I I know for myself and my own tackling and dealing with my own emotional eating issues, it's always been about being okay with myself, right here, right now, and not needing to. F- Feed the moment with anything extra, or numb the moment, or what, whatever it is, uh, whatever the, the food or the alcohol or the drug or whatever it was, you know, the, the choice was to do. But to change the moment, but to really to be unconditionally with myself wherever I am in the well, moment. Well, that sounds great, but if you're seriously compulsive, yeah. just saying that doesn't really mean a whole lot. And right. So the idea spiritually is that just being with yourself. Um, actually will not do it. Right. It, there is that hole in there, and the hole has to do with where that sacred energy of love of God and love mm. of all human beings and all sentient beings and, and asking God how I can be a conduit and an expression and a channel for his love on earth. Uh, otherwise, there, this business of I just need to be okay with myself, I mean, the devil laughs at that. Mm. <laughs> the ego laughs at that. Sounds good, but any seriously compulsive or addicted person knows, yeah, right. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. it's, it's like if, if we do not fill the space with the sacred, we will be plagued by the neurotic. Mm. If you don't fill the space with the sacred, you will be plagued by the compulsive. You will be plagued by the addicted. Right. And just telling ourselves to be okay with myself. Um, um, yeah, and I, and I understand. I think what I was saying, I think I, said I was meaning it in a more broader context. Yeah, of course Really you were, connecting, yes, in a, in a much bigger unconditional space than just saying to oneself, I, I'm, I'm okay with myself. But I mean, even if you go beyond just saying it. Right. Any, that's where the spiritual element, that's why Abs- in AA they say without a spiritual experience. Absolutely. It, there's, you, you can't do it yourself. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, sometimes when people will say about my work, it's self-help. I laugh at that. You're the problem. You're not the answer. Right. <laughs> and that's what any addict knows. That's what any, you know, I'm not addicted to a substance, but the principles of the 12 steps are true for just the human condition at this time because we're, we're addicted to a fear-based perspective. So the idea is that life is unmanageable when you think you can do it yourself. Right. 
so this idea of just being okay with myself, even when seen in a broader context, yeah. the spiritual message there is, but you can't be okay with yourself until yourself becomes that self with a big S. Right. And that, and only a spiritual experience can do that. Right. For, can give us that transition. It's not just a matter of making the S bigger. Right. <laughs> when we write it out. <laughs> and with that, we have to end. It's not just making the S bigger, people. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marianne, for so coming much down for here. Having me. Uh, it's Thank such a pleasure you. to meet you, and uh, I look forward to coming Monday nights. I haven't been really busy lately, but I'm going to come and check out your new Thank space you. and honored. everything. Thank you. Is there anything uh, that you're doing that you want to promote while you're here? Any? Uh, well, thank teachings you. out there in the I, world. I think, of course, the Monday nights at the Saban Theater. And if anybody wants any further information, it, my website, Marianne.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, or MarianneWilliamson.com, and it's all there. My Facebook page and all that stuff. The thank Facebook you. page and the Twitter. And it's every, fun, though. You it know, is. It's I, great. I mean, I'm I'm a big uh, fan of what's going on out there it, you know that i can write a sentence go get a cup of coffee and come back and several hundred people are discussing it that's not a small thing it's a miracle well look at what yeah. happened in egypt it's when that man was let out of prison and they said what arab country do you think is, is going to be next he said i don't know ask facebook <laughs> did you see that, that absolutely yeah it, it is amazing uh, so thank you, Marianne. Thank you. And thank you, Johnny Dam, for running this great station. And thank you, Babs. And thank you, Amy, for showing up today. And my husband, Bob. And I'm going to thank also the Twitterverse and Facebook land, as I like to call them, and my friends and family. And the big S. We'll call it the big S. We'll thank the big S today. And uh, I'm going to close the show with another Logan Heftel song. Uh, this one is called One Day because, well, one day it's going to happen. Just looking through If I'd gotten up early and gone back to school Or spent each Sunday in the same big room If I had one day, one day to live I'd be on my way to the time that I'd given up To boredom and gain If I had one day, I'd forget to blame I'd be on my way to the times that I'd given up For fiction and names If I had one day, just one day What if I'd gone where I said I would go If I'd kept my word, would anyone know Or if I'd gotten in early and answered the phone Or read through the chapters before on my own If I had one day one day to live, I'd be on my way To the time that I'd given up to boredom and gain If I had one day, I'd be the one to blame yeah, What can I say to the time spent complaining Just when things went my way If I had one day, just one day of your days asking did I rob myself 
Or is it better to fail as you probably will Like countless nameless did before Or worse yet, success, catastrophe at best Then no answer is ever only yours If I had one day, one day to live I'd be on my way to the time that I'd given up To boredom and gain if I had one day I'd do it all the same yeah, What can I say to the times That I've given up for fiction and names If I had one day Just one day If I had one day If I had one day To the times that I've given up for fiction and names If I had one day Just one day New Dissident Radio. New Dissident Radio. On the internet. Listen before it's illegal.